Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. We've been working through the minor prophets. And we're coming towards the end. We have one book remaining. We'll start that next week, Malachi. I'd like to finish up Zechariah tonight by looking at chapters 12 through 14. If you've been a Christian for a significant amount of time, you know that the Christian life is not a piece of cake. It's not a walk in the park, is it? Scriptures refer to it, in fact, as a battle. Not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. It is a struggle. But that struggle should not cause us to give up because the Lord is on our side. And we understand that if we patiently and with trust fight and we run the race and we finish the race, that because we're on the Lord's side, we will win. And so we ought to, we ought to fight. We ought to struggle. We shouldn't let it scare us away from, from fighting against sin. Rather, we should, we should finish the race. Because, you know, the difference, one of the differences between us and unbelievers is that unbelievers, they give in to sin. They say yes to sin. Believers don't do that. They stand up and fight. And so we should do, when we think about struggle, is we should allow the struggle to cause us to be moved back to where we need to be. And that is next to God. The struggle in the Christian life is a good thing because it helps us to recognize that we don't have it all figured out. We are not completely in control. And so we move ourselves back to where we ought to be and that's next to God. And we should allow that struggle to cause us to desire a better life. A time when all wrongs will be made right. Not the life which the world holds out in front of us. You know, this, this American dream, this, uh, this love of self, this, this life of ease and, and perhaps even promiscuity. But rather the, life, the better life that, that God holds out in front of us. And that is a life where all wrongs will be made right. Where the pains frustrations and difficulties that you now face will all be traded with comfort and rest and joy. And that will all happen in the life to come. So in our struggle, we should not give up. Rather, we should allow it to cause us to move closer to God and to long for that, that time when we'll, we will be closest to God in the life to come. So we, we cling to His promises during times of struggle. And if we wanted to, we could we could separate all of human history from the very beginning of time all the way till eternity. We could separate it into two periods of time. One is where God prepares Himself and us to, to live with Him forever. So there's a time of preparation where God's preparing His people so that He can live among them and He can be their God and they can be His people. There's that period of time. We're in that time right now. And then there's the time where God will live among His people. That time hasn't come yet. 
Okay, fully. We have a down payment, the Holy Spirit, right? But we don't have that, that fully. We don't have God living among us where justice is enacted immediately. God is still slow to anger. He still gives people opportunities to repent. And as a result, there are injustices that happen in the world from our perspective. There are injustices. But there will come a time when God will live among His people through the Messiah, Christ, and all the wrongs will be made right. So we're going to see that those two divisions here in Zechariah uh, chapter 12 through 14. So let's begin reading the uh, first chapter here, Zechariah chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on, on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In these three chapters, we're going to see that God will accomplish His purpose to live among His people through His Son, the Messiah. What we have described for us here in these last three chapters of Zechariah is the future day of the Lord. It's a time period that is still future even for us. And it was was predicted in the Old Testament. It wasn't something that just came about in the New Testament. God said, you know what, here, I'm going to send you a, a... something that you can look forward to. Now, it was predicted in the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord is much like the day in the Jewish calendar, which is unlike our day. Our day begins 
generally, gen- generally we think of it as beginning with light. When you get up in the morning, it's light outside, and then we think of the nighttime where it's dark. But the Jewish calendar was, or the Jewish day was different. They actually began their day at six o'clock in the evening, and and then they concluded it at six o'clock the next evening. So, so the really the day began with darkness, and you had twelve hours sometimes of darkness before it came to light. And that's what the day of the Lord is like in the future. It will be time first of darkness. And you you can understand what darkness is. In the Scripture, darkness is spoken of in two ways. One is literal darkness, where it's dark outside. Where when Jesus died on the cross, there was literal darkness. But it's also symbolic. There's also figurative darkness in the sense that it, 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 there is wrath coming down from God. And that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. It's going to start with a time of judgment by God, darkness, like the Jewish day, and then it will conclude with light. And that is the millennium. When, when, when Christ comes as the Messiah, when He reigns, that will be a great time for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Um, in fact, Isaiah 60, verse 2, talks about this day. It says, Darkness shall cover the earth, but the Lord arises upon thee talking about the day of the Lord. Darkness will cover the earth, but then the Lord arises upon thee. When the Lord comes, He makes all the wrongs right. And then it will be light forevermore for all those who have trusted in Him. So, what we have here, I believe, in these three chapters is is this um, is, is that it's separated into two major sections. Chapters 12 and 13 talk about God's preparation for living among His people. So God's saying, I'm still preparing you to live live with me or me to live with you. And then chapter 14 is talking about when He actually will live among His people. Okay, so let's look at the first uh, chapter. We see, first of all, in chapter 12, God protects His people. We just read about that. The basis for His action, the fact that He can protect, is found in verse uh, 1. The second part of the verse says, Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. The basis for his action as protector of his people is that he is the creator. If God can create simply by speaking it into existence, can he not also create his own society of people that came out of chaos? Certainly he can. We see that his protection in battle, or his protection of them in battle, in verses two through nine. And what you'll find in these last three chapters is this this phrase that is repeated over and over again, and that is, "In that day." You see that in verse three to begin with. It will come about in that day. Verse four, in that day. Verse six, in that day. Verse eight, in that day. Verse nine and in that day, and so on. You, you'll see this all throughout the, these last three chapters. And this is a uh, what we call an eschatological marker. In other words, an end times marker. It basically helps the, the reader of the Old Testament prophecies to see that this is talking about the day of the Lord, the future time uh, where there will be judgment and blessing. And in these last three chapters, we have that that phrase and that day used 16 times, where in the first 11 chapters of the book, it's only used three times. So we see that 
Now God is talking about, okay, in the first several chapters, He's talking about your deliverance, yes, Israel. But here now I'm talking about your future and final deliverance. This is where it will all be culminated. All of human history will, will be culminated. And in verses 2 and 3, we find the battle of Armageddon, which is talked about in Revelation in, in detail, where Christ will win the battle. And the result of this is found in verses 4 through 9. And that is, you see in verse 8, that the feeble will be like David. Let's read verse 8 again. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before him. Now, obviously this is uh, helping us to see that the person who is weak, the feeble person, is going to be like David, one of the greatest warriors in all of of uh, Christian history. and Or I should say, in, in all of, uh, of the history of Israel. But what we need to understand is that this last phrase that says, the house of David will be like God. How can the house of David be like God? What does this mean? I think the answer is found in the last phrase of the verse. It says that the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. The people of Israel would have recognized that the angel of the Lord was the one who helped them win battles. Do you remember a battle in which the angel of the Lord helped them to win? Jericho, right? Right before you get to Joshua chapter 6, you have at the end of Joshua 5 where the angel of the Lord comes and, and, and has his sword drawn. And Joshua approaches him. And he finds out that the angel of the Lord is actually the one who's going to give him the battle. So, so what he's saying is not that you're going to be God. Notice what the verse says. Verse 8, that the house of David, the people of Israel, will be like God. They will be like God. In the sense that they will receive a, 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 an aspect or a portion of His glory. And that they will be seen as great because they are connected with God Himself. So the protection of His people is found in, in chapter 12, uh, primarily in verses 1 through 9. And then in verses uh, chapter 12, verse 10 through 13, 9, we have the purification of God's people, where God purifies His people. God's people had suffered under oppressive leadership and they rejected His loving rule, which brought to them more intense judgment upon them. But God would not abandon them. Even though He judged them and said, listen, this is not the way you're supposed to live, He, he would not abandon them because He had a covenant with them. We see that in chapter uh, uh, 12, verses 1-9. through 9. I'm going to be your protector. And then He says, listen, I'm going to lead you to a place of repentance. That is often what God uses judgment for. To lead a person to a place of repentance. You see this all throughout the book of Judges. When the people of Israel continually strayed from God and wandered away from Him, then God brought judgment on them for 40 years and they would get frustrated and cry out to God and finally they would repent and God would send a deliverer. See, God is, is, is quick to cleanse from sin. He, he's ready to do it. We just simply need to repent. And this is what He does for Israel as well. We'll see this cleansing from sin when we get to chapter 13. But ultimately what He's trying to do is to restore a relationship with them. To, to make them ready for Him to live among them. That's what He's leading them to do. So we see 
that God is leading them to repentance in chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. Notice specifically verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Notice the wording there. They will look on me. Now, who's talking here? Who's talking? I mean, obviously it's Zechariah. He's the prophet. But who is he speaking on behalf of? God the Father, right? So, so God the Father speaking. Look what he says in verse 10 again. They will look, middle of the verse, they will look on me. They will look on me, God the Father, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for, notice, him. What's going on here? Why will they look on me, God the Father, and mourn for Him? Well, I think if you know your Scriptures well, you'll know that this is, this is fulfilled in John chapter 19. Turn there with me. The readers of Zechariah would have understood that they were piercing God. That they were, they were causing pain to God in some way. And so they were comparing what Zechariah was doing was comparing their rejection of God to a physical wound. But the context shows us that there's something more involved. And in fact, the fulfillment of this prophecy shows us that there is something more than simply that God the Father feels rejected. It's more than that. Notice chapter 19 of John, verse 34. Jesus has been hanging on the cross and the soldiers come by, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on Him whom they have pierced. That quotation is directly from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So, so turn back to Zechariah. What God is saying here is you're going to look on Me whom you have pierced and you will mourn for Him. My Son, you, will, you have actually pierced Him. It's not something that I just feel rejection. Although that may be part of it. There's more than that. You've actually done a literal piercing of God in the form of the Messiah. Notice the depth of their mourning at the end of the verse. And they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. When they realize what they have done, that they have actually pierced God the Messiah. They will mourn for Him as if they have lost their only son. I can't help but think back to Egypt when Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt lost their firstborn son with that tenth plague. And the incredible amount of wailing and weeping and grief that was going on at that time. Do you realize that the Jews will do the same thing? I think the Gentiles will be included in this. They will look on Him whom they have pierced and realize that they have killed the Messiah. As a result, it will lead to 
uh, this depth of mourning will lead to repentance. And that's why verse 10 says at the beginning, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. The idea of repentance. Notice who initiates this turning. It is God. It is God who pours out the Spirit. They're not calling out for God to help them. Uh, it is God who gives them this desire to turn back to Him. And so as a result of their repentance, God. remember I said God is quick to forgive, quick to cleanse of sin. He's ready, just waiting for you to repent. Notice what He does in chapter 13, verses 1-6. through He cleanses them from their sin. In that day, a fountain will be open, opened for the house of David and for inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, when we look at verse 6, it seems as if we're talking about the Messiah, but in order to understand what verse 6 means, we need to understand the first several verses. Let's begin with verse 1, because what verse 1 is talking about is, is a fountain of cleansing. That there is going to be a, a, a spring from which flows the running water which is necessary for ritual purification. Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, talks about this. It is a spring that flows from the uh, the temple there at Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And it is both literal, it's a real spring, and it's also symbolic. It helps us to see the picture that we need the water of life that comes from God, from His temple. So we have a literal spring from flowing from the throne of God and it's symbolic for the life-giving power that comes from Christ. And this is something that God is working in us to do, to cleanse us. He does this for Israel in the future. He does it for them in the past. He also does it for us as Gentiles as well. But then in verses 2 through 6, we have the purging of sin and idols. So first we have this fountain of cleansing. Come to the fountain, be cleansed from your sin. Then verses 2 through 6, now purge yourself of your sin and your idols. Get rid of them. Verse 2 talks about the idols being, being completely eliminated. And then in verse 3, God demands holiness. And it's so serious that even parents, people of, of the same bloodline, will put to death their own apostate children. Think about it. Who is closer, who, or who in your lifetime was closer to you than your parents? I mean, who would give anything for you other than your parents? There are fewer people who would because they are... You are their flesh and blood. And yet, in that day, holiness will be of such great importance because, because uh, God will, will show them the need for them to turn to them. It will be of such, so, such a serious nature that even parents will put to death their apostate children. That's what verse, uh, that's what verse 3 tells us. 
And because of these severe dealings, because everyone will care very deeply for justice and that, that God's holiness is upheld, notice what happens in verses 4-6. through six. The false prophets will avoid looking like a prophet. That's what verses 4 and 4 through 6 are talking about. They don't want to be seen as as prophets anymore. They don't want to be seen as prophets at all because they know that false prophets are put to death under this type of rule, under this type of perfect rule. And that's why we have uh, in verse 4, at the end of the verse, they will not put on a hairy robe. Okay, Do you remember what the hairy robe was used for? Remember Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1? Um, it, it would set him apart as a prophet, right? And so people would quickly recognize someone with a hairy robe was a prophet. But these guys don't want to be known as a prophet because they know that they're false prophets and they don't want to be seen as prophets at all because then when they're found out, they're killed. Instead of the, the false prophet... Uh, Instead, he will deny being a prophet and claim to be a farmer. That's what verse 5 says. But he will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground. I'm a farmer. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. So he tries to, to, to make as if he is, he, he is doing a different occupation when he, in fact, is a false prophet. And then verse 6 is what I was referring to earlier that sometimes we can look at it and say, you know what? That looks like the Messiah. It's got two wounds between the arms and that He was wounded in His own house by His friends. That sounds like Jesus. It sounds like the Christ. But that's not speaking of the Messiah because we're talking about what in context? first five verses, or the last two specifically, are talking about false prophets. So these wounds were actually ritual scars that they would use um, to... to to somehow incite the pagan gods. It was a pagan practice where they would cut themselves and they would bruise themselves in order to reach a higher state of prophecy. But when these wounds are discovered, these men, they claim that they're from something else. Verse 6, And you will say to them, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those are which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So what he's saying is, Oh, I got in a little scuffle with some friends of mine, and that's where these wounds came from. These are not wounds because I'm a prophet. I'm not one of these false prophets. Okay, please don't take me as that. So we have the purging of sin and idols. The cleansing of sin. That's what God is is coming to do. So first, God says, listen, I'm going to be your protector. Second, He says, I'm going to cause you to repent. So come and repent. Recognize whom you have pierced, my son. And then I will cleanse you from sin. And the reason he does this is found in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. And that is because he wants to restore his covenant relationship with his people. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. And I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. You see what God desires most to do? He longs to live among the people who bear His image. 
He longs to do that because that is where He is is most glorified. And so He's working all of human history to this climax where Christ is exalted because He has bridged the gap between Himself and His image bearers who have marred that image, but they haven't totally lost it when they sinned. One commentator, uh, commentator sums up these verses very clearly. He says, Though the violent treatment of God's shepherd, verse 7, would bring confusion and suffering to God's flock, a remnant, a small number, would be preserved. Once it passed through the fire of judgment, this remnant would emerge spiritually pure. The people would look to God for guidance, not to idols or false prophets, and He would direct them. God says, listen, you strike My shepherd, you strike My son, and the sheep are going to scatter, but I'm going to bring them back together. I'm bringing them back into the fold where I can live among them. And so this is this is a message of hope for Israel. Listen, don't despair. There are struggles going on right now, but don't despair because I am working to live among you. And what I need from you is you for you simply to repent. Recognize your sin and repent it to me. And I will give you cleansing. Of sin. The final product is found in chapter 14, and that is that God will live among His people. So we go from the age of, uh, or, or the darkness of the day of the Lord, now to the light of the day of the Lord, where, where Christ will reign. This is a great time in, in, uh, in all of human history, which is still to come. God will live among His people through the reign of His Son, the Messiah. We see first this end times battle in verses 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. This doesn't sound too promising, does it? This battle seems like Israel is going to lose seems like God's people is going to have the defeat. It's an apparent victory for the satanic army where the world really comes to its darkest hour. There is a, a dissonant chord in human history before it finally resolves. We'll see here at the end of the chapter. It won't be complete. The rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. There will still be this remnant. You notice here in these verses that the city will be captured. There will be people who will be ravished, but there will be a remnant that it remains. And God will cause these people to rise up, and as a result, verses 3 through 7, there will be victory. Because the Lord comes to win the battle, the Lord Himself comes. Listen, I don't need to send anybody else. I'm coming personally in the form of my Son. Notice verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against these nations, those nations. And when He fights on a day of uh, uh, on a day of battle, in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee. Just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him, 
In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Here we have the final victory. The Lord Himself will come to finish the battle. Seems like Jerusalem is lost. Seems like the people have have all been destroyed, but, but then Christ comes. He stands physically on the Mount of Olives, proving His reign over all the earth that I am the King. It's the same King who entered in chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah. The same King who entered on a lowly donkey, taking upon Himself, as Philippians 2 says, the form of a servant and becoming in the likeness of a man. He humbled Himself. Same mountain, that he he fulfills that prophecy in nine nine. It says that he would come in on a donkey, he would be riding it humble and also bringing peace, and, and that's fulfilled on the Mount of Olives. Mark chapter eleven verses one through eleven. We'll see that next Sunday morning. The same mountain is the, this mountain that Jesus will return to bodily return, where he stands on this mountain. And verse four tells us that there will be a leveling of the topography, where all the area around Jerusalem will be leveled. That land eventually will be um, divided and people will live in that land and, and there will be sacrifices that are made at this temple during the millennium. Not sacrifices in order to bring atonement, but really sacrifices much like what we do for the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial. It's looking back to what Christ had done or looking back to what the Old Testament men had to do in order to to uh, receive atonement from God. In verses 6 and 7, we see that there will be disturbances in space. During the time when the sun normally shines during the day, there will be no light. But in the time when when there's normally darkness during the evening, then verse 7 tells us that light will burst forth. So so there will be something that, that gets shaken up in space. And then let me have you skip down to verse 12 because we see this final destruction that will take place. Verse 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. You think Christ really needs humans to accomplish His purpose? It seems as if these people will be, will be destroyed by disintegrating and also by attacking each other. Same thing will happen to their animals. Panic will set in and they would destroy each other. Judah would join in, gather up all the riches of the, the surrounding areas. Not a pretty picture. This plague would cause the people to externally rot while they were still alive. Jesus will have the final victory. All the wrongs will be made right. We see a description of this millennial kingdom in the last verses that we haven't looked at, and that is verses 8 through 11 and verses 16 through 21. 
these verses really are the transition. I said that it came at verse 1 of, of chapter 14. But really, this is the transition from darkness to light to the day of the Lord. Where we have the arrival of the mediatorial king, we have the destruction of the hostile army, armies, and then as Daniel 11.45 talks about, the doom of the blasphemous little horn. But here's, here's what we see in verses 8-11. through 11. First, we see in verse 8, millennial prosperity. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Jerusalem would be the capital of the worldwide kingdom. All of the world would be under this rule of this one who sits on David's throne, the Christ. So there will be millennial prosperity. There will also be this millennial ruler, verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, in His name the only one. There's no more competition. No one else to compete against. No Satan to try to woo other people away. In fact, Satan during this time, during the 1,000 year reign, the millennium, will be aware. He will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years until the end when he is judged finally and sent into the lake of fire. We have millennial uh, prosperity, the millennial ruler. Verses 10 and 11 talk about millennial security. Verse 10, all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem uh, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Nothing to be afraid of. We, we talked about this before where the the children as well as the older people will live in the street. The idea of the, the weakest people of society will be able to live out in the streets, not afraid of anyone coming in to attack. It will be a city without walls. And that's because it has the Lord as its king. And verses 16, 16 through 19 show us that there will be millennial worship. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. Fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You get the idea. We need to go and worship. Hey, don't don't wait. Don't don't uh, skip. We're going to go and worship the King at His throne. And all who, those who don't will immediately have a plague come upon them, where their crops will dry up. They will have no rain fall on them. And then in verses 20 through 21, we see that there will be millennial purity. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord 
of hosts in that day. There will be millennial purity where even to down to the smallest, most seemingly insignificant item, the bell on a horse, even that will have inscribed on it, holy to the Lord. It will be set apart for God's purposes. You remember how many things became unholy just because of of how they were used or being touched by someone who was unclean? That won't happen anymore. Everything down from the bells of the horses to the bowls and the cooking pots and the houses will all be set apart for God's purposes. And any of them, no matter where you bring them from, could all be used for sacrifices or or ceremonial purposes. They're all cleansed. They don't have to go through some purification process. And so God's original and final purpose for Israel will be realized. That He would make a nation holy to Himself and set them apart, purified and able for God to live in their midst. This is what He has promised in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. God's plan is to restore His relationship with His adulterous wife, Israel. Although He has been pierced by them, rejected, included in that plan for them, that He will bring restoration to them, included in in the people of Israel, is us. We're included in that plan. Though we haven't come to a realization of that plan, for Zechariah's readers, it was still far off. The Lord will eventually deliver His people. He will deliver them from their oppression and bring them to genuine repentance, restore His covenant with them by cleansing them from their sin. And that day He would bring the nations into His kingdom. And that's where you and I come in. This plan is not limited to the people of Jewish descent. There's an offer to the kingdom to the Gentiles as well. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 16 of Zechariah. Sorry, that's not the right verse. I think it's... Well, I chose the wrong one. But there, but it talks about how the Gentiles would join in Israel in worshiping them. I, I think you probably remember us talking about this, where when the Jews are going up to the temple to worship, the Gentiles are saying, hey, we want to go with you. And so that, that's where we come in. That, that God doesn't exclude... His plan simply to the Jewish people. He opens it up to all people who are willing to come and accept His Son. In fact, that's what John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 talk about. Verses I quote often because they have they are so packed with meaning. It says that Jesus came unto His own, His own people, the Jews, but His own did not receive Him. They rejected Him. Even His own hometown of Nazareth, they rejected Him. And then the next verse, verse 12, but as many as received Him, you and me, to them gave He the right, the privilege to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. And we know from Revelation that the heaven and the millennial kingdom will be packed full of people who are not Jews. It will be packed with Jews, yeah, there will be, but they will be the smallest. They will be the minority of people. It will be primarily non-Jews who are, who are there, who have been recipients of God's grace, who have received the promise of eternal life. And so here's the message that 
that Zechariah has for this Jewish community who has just returned from exile, they're frustrated because it seems like God's promises are still far away. He's saying, listen, don't give up. This is no excuse to become spiritually complacent just because you haven't received all the promises. You need to genuinely repent and obey Me. That's what God is saying. Your religious rituals are nothing before Me, God is saying. I want genuine repentance. And although they had the perfect shepherd, God, they would fail to meet up to His requirements. And as a result, God would bring about disaster to them and suffering. But the Lord wouldn't give up on them because He had a covenant relationship with them and He would bring them back to repentance and deliver His people from their enemies. And He would lead them to a place where they would be cleansed from their sins. So here's the message for us. If we're going to share in the blessings that God has for His people, God is not looking for religious rituals to be fulfilled. He doesn't want you to simply go through the motions of of following through and grinding out obedience. There are times when that is good, when we should just work hard at obeying because our flesh fights against it. But, but, But God wants more than that. Not a once and done type relationship. But you know what? God took care of me back there. I'm all set. It's a continuous recognition of our offense before God, how how dirty our sin is before a holy God, and recognizing our worthlessness, and combining that with a continual trust in what He has given to us and and how we ought to display it in obedience, regular daily. Uh, unnoticed, in many cases, obedience. Perhaps you're struggling spiritually right now. It feels like darkness has set in and that the light of that promised future day is still far away. And perhaps it is. Have you given up on God? Because God hasn't given up on His plan. God hasn't given up on His plan to... to, to to make you a holy, a set-apart, a cleansed people so that He can live among you. He's so serious about that plan that He has provided for us the Spirit of grace to come and cause us to repent. Is God's plan too far away for you? Are you willing to patiently wait and trust and struggle through the rough patches of the spiritual life in order to obtain final victory? Or are you going to give up? Because if you just cut out in the middle of the race, then it proves that you never were in the race. You've got to continue to the end. That's what God does for all of His people. He, he allows them to continue to the end. And so that means that we got to keep on struggling. What a wonderful plan God has in store for us. A wonderful plan that comes directly from Him where He wants to live among us. And He longs to say to us, I am your God. And for us to say to Him that that He is our God and that we are His people. Won't that be a great day when all the wrongs are made right? Where God will be just and He will be seen to be just by all people. No one will question Him. That day is coming. But until then, we need to struggle. We need to fight. Because the battle against sin will never end in this lifetime. It will never end.
we have to wait until the life to come. And all of God's promises will be realized. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, if we had it in our control to be able to write human history, certainly we would do it differently. But we are not You. And we're thankful that we are not You because we are so different from You in many ways. We would fail. You have a perfect plan in store that You have written long before the foundations of the earth. And You have revealed it to Your people over time. And You've even revealed even more to us through the New Covenant, the New Testament. And we eagerly await that day. And we, like John at the end of Revelation, pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We want the millennium to begin. We want that time when when all of the, the sufferings and the injustices that happen in this earth because Satan is in many senses the God of this world, we long for that to be over. We long for the struggle to be done. It seems like the battle never ends. It seems like there's never a break in the Christian life to stop and take a rest. And so we long for that day. But we also recognize that You are a good God. And You don't leave us out in the battlefield all alone. You didn't just send us out there and say, hope you do well with that. Instead, You left us with Your Spirit and Your Word to give us comfort and grace. And You provide for us and pour out upon us so many spiritual blessings as well as physical ones. We can't even comprehend how great Your love is for us. We have an idea because we recognize what You did by sending Jesus Christ. And we are forever indebted to You for that but we still do need Your help. We need Your help daily to fight against the sinful nature and the world and the devil that is opposed to You. We live in a world that is in complete rebellion against You and and who rejects You as the King. We look forward to that day when Jesus will be King and He will be seen to be King by all people, and no one will be able to usurp His authority. Lord, help us to keep that day in view as we await His return or our death, whichever comes first. May we be faithful to You all the way to the end so that, you, uh, so that the Lord will say of us when we enter heaven, well done, Thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my Lord. May that be our goal in life, to please you in every respect. For we pray in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.